0: the book of First Timothy, chapter 4, 1 Timothy, chapter 4, as we're continuing through the book of First Timothy. About 12 years ago, there was a woman in our church that got caught up in a cult, some false teaching out of a so-called prophet or pastor in Arkansas. And she came to me and said, "Emmanuel Baptist Church is a false church. You guys have false teaching. You believe error, and I'm not coming to this church anymore. And so over the next few months, she consumed herself with these DVDs, with these teachings, and she basically holed herself up from any other contact with any other churches and basically devoured this false teaching. And after a few months, she came into the church and she wanted to talk with me. So she came into my office and she began to talk about how I was a false teacher, how I believe false teaching. And and we kind of got into a little bit of a heated argument. And I told her, I said, please show me the passage of scripture where your teaching comes from. Please show me the passage of Scripture, and she could not do that, and she kept arguing with me and arguing with me, and finally, I just, I've never done this before. My, I raised my voice. The only time I've ever done this, so church member, if you come into my office, I'm not going to raise my voice to you, but I said to her in a very, uh, and no, let me just put it this way. I said to her, you are in danger of eternal hell because you're playing with fire. And as your pastor, you need to repent now because this is dangerous for your soul. And she got a little, like, taken back that I was so forceful with her. So she left in a huff. And as I walked out, Sherry and Tarina, my ministry assistants, were like, what was going on in there? We've never heard you raise your voice before. And so about two weeks later, something unexpected happened. She came back to the church. She came back to my office. She wanted to meet with me again. I thought, oh, great, here we go again. Round two, we're going to have this. No, she came in in tears, and she said, Pastor Sean, I was wrong. If it hadn't been for your strong rebuke, if it hadn't for you been getting in my face and telling me I was in danger, my eyes would not have been opened. I went back, and I started reading that material, and it is false, and so I threw it away. I got rid of all of it and I'm coming back and I'm submitting myself under the leadership of this church and I repent of heresy. And I was shocked because that doesn't normally happen. But she said, it was because you got in my face and were so strong that it woke me up. Now sometimes we've got to be very strong when it comes to false teaching. And why? Because false teaching teaching can quickly destroy your soul. Why? Because it comes from the pit of hell. It is demonic. Now, why do I bring up the demonic dangers of false teaching today? Well, that's really how Paul began this whole letter. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, Paul begins 1 Timothy by addressing false teachers. He says, Timothy, you got to deal with these false teachers. And then he talks about some other stuff that we've been looking at over the past few months. And then as we get back to chapter 4, he gets back to that issue of dealing with false teachers. And it comes right on the heels of what we saw last week about this confession of faith. That is, as a church, we must urgently confess and defend the truth of the gospel. And so Paul is going to address false teaching as we shift into chapter 4. So we're just going to be in the first five verses this morning. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, let's read this together. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So if we could distill this passage of Scripture down to one key thought, one main point, the central teaching, it is this. A faithful church anticipates and avoids the demonic dangers of false teaching. So what does it mean to anticipate false teaching? And how do you avoid false teaching? And why is it demonically dangerous i've chosen those words carefully so we're going to see four teachings from this passage of scripture that alert us to the dangers of demonic false teaching and so here's the first the dire reality of false teaching The dire reality. Now, where do I get the dire reality? Because Paul says there in verse 1, the Holy Spirit expressly or explicitly, it's really the only time this word shows up in the original language, the Holy Spirit is expressly saying that there is going to be false teaching. It is is ordained by God. It's It's the undisputed word of God. It's going to happen, and it's going to happen in the last days. I get this question often. Are we living in the last days? And the answer is yes. Well, When did the last days begin? The moment Jesus went back up to heaven. When will the last days end? When he comes back. When's he going to come back? I don't know. I just know we're one day closer than we were yesterday. And we are living in the last days. And as we live in the last days, we're engaged in an epic Battle for truth. Truth against error. And so what Paul is saying here is because the Holy Spirit has expressly said this, we should not be surprised by false teaching. It shouldn't surprise us. We should understand the dire reality of it. Jesus even warned us. In Matthew 24, 10-11, Jesus said, Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will will arise and lead many astray. Notice how many times that Jesus words the word many. Many false prophets. Many being led astray. What did Paul say would happen to this very church in Ephesus that, Timothy's the pastor of. Remember back in Acts, Paul gathered the elders of the church of Ephesus and he said this to them in Acts twenty twenty nine through 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Twisted things, many false prophets. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So there's a reality, a dire reality of false teaching. And what does Paul say is going to happen as a result of that? Notice what he says there in verse 1. Some will depart some will depart from the faith. That word is where we get the word apostasy, to fall away, to abandon, to apostatize. Now, what is apostasy? That's probably a word you haven't heard a lot. What does it mean to fall away from the faith? Does this mean that you were saved and you lost your salvation? No, that's not what it means. Do you remember the parable of the soils? Jesus tells the parable of the soils. Remember the second soil? The second soil received the word with gladness, received the word with joy, but there was no root. And so that person fell away. Jesus says this in Luke eight thirteen. And the ones on the rock, the rocky soil, the second soil, the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word of God, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. They're not truly saved. They have no root. They fall away because they give in to false teaching. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. I've said this many times before, but let me just ask it again. Does a profession of faith automatically mean possession of faith? And the answer is no. You can profess faith and not truly be saved or in possession of faith. And so apostasy, falling away, is is this hardened, rebellious, falling away from the faith. You never were saved in the first place. It's not a losing of your salvation. It's a falling away of what you never had in the first place, but you are rejecting the truth. And we should expect this. There are a lot, just recently a lot of supposedly so-called former Christians who are deconstructing or falling away. The big term you hear now is deconstruction. They're, they're either deconstructing or they're falling away from the faith. You may have heard of Josh Harris. He was popular back in the late 90s when I was a youth pastor. He had that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He became a pastor of a megachurch in Maryland. As a matter of fact, Sovereign Grace music came out of his church. A lot of the songs that we sing from Sovereign Grace. He was on the speaking circuit with John MacArthur and John Piper and R.C. Sproul and and Al Mohler and all these big names that you would recognize. But then back in 2019, he announced on Instagram that he had divorced his wife and he made this statement. Josh Harris, who wrote books on Christianity, who pastored a megachurch, who spoke with our, our favorite pastors He says, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. He says, the popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. He's no longer a Christian. And as a matter of fact, he sells a six-week course to help Christians fall away from the faith. Thank you very much, Josh Harris. Just take people along with you as you leave. You may have never heard of Paul Maxwell, but I'm sure you've heard of John Piper's Desiring God Ministries. Paul Maxwell was a writer for John Piper's Desiring God. He was a professor at Moody Bible Institute. He was a professor at Trinity Seminary. He wrote article after article from John Piper's website. And then in 2021, he announced this also on Instagram. He says, I think it's important to say that I'm not just, not a, that I'm not just a Christian anymore, Let me say that again. I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore and it feels really good. I'm really happy. I'm really happy. He's not a Christian anymore. Many will depart from the faith. The Spirit expressly says in the last times it will happen. So we need to be prepared. We need to anticipate this falling away. We need to anticipate this false teaching. It is a dire reality. Now, here's the second thing we need to see this morning. The demonic source of the false teaching. The demonic source. What is the source of all of this? Well, Paul gives two sources of this false teaching. First of all, the teaching itself. If you notice what he says there at the end of verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the truth by devoting themselves, obsessing themselves to, here's the first, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons the actual teaching itself the demonic teaching the heretical teaching the false teaching and it's demonic notice what paul says it's from deceitful demons it's the the, the teaching of demons from from deceitful spirits and this all comes from Satan himself, because Jesus said, when he's talking to the Pharisees in John eight forty four, he says, you Pharisees are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's the father of lies. He's a liar. It's out of his own nature. He can outwit us. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians 2.11 We would not be outwitted by Satan for we're not ignorant of his designs. He's got tactics. He's got schemes. He's got strategies. He's got fiery darts. Remember kids? A couple weeks ago, Vacation Bible School, you remember the motions? Those fiery darts are coming at you. 2 Corinthians 11.3 I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Deceived. Now, Satan doesn't normally give an assault frontal attack to the church where we can see it coming. He's sneaky, he's crafty, he's got schemes. He's seductive. He's subtle. And what he does is he mixes in a little bit of error with the truth so that we're we're not automatically taken off guard. It sounds kind of true. It may be half true, but he mixes in that error. And we need to realize what Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in an epic battle against demonic forces, demonic teachings, teachings that come from the pit of hell, the teachings. But there's a second thing these teachings have to be taught by people so Paul secondly addresses the actual men in the church who were propagating these teachings notice what he calls them he says there in verse 2 through the insincerity of liars he calls them liars whose consciences are seared they're liars they're hypocrites they put on a good show. They are sneaky. They are sneaky just like the devil is sneaky. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen 13-15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds these men are sneaky they're liars they're hypocrites and that's why First John 4 1 says we must test the spirits First John 4 1 beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world I keep coming back to that word many many false prophets And with the proliferation of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and social media, the false prophets and the false teachings are everywhere. We need to be aware of it. But notice how Paul describes these men. Their consciences are seared. Some translations may say, as branded as with a hot iron, or seared as like an iron. Well, it's the conscience. So what is the conscience? That conscience is that internal mechanism that God has put in us to know right from wrong, to know good from evil. He's put that in everybody. so we have integrity, we have morality. And so we want to have good consciences. Notice what Timothy was told when this book first started. Go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Paul has already addressed the conscience. You go back to chapter 1, verse 5. He started out with this. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A good conscience. And then look at verse 19 of chapter 1. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Rejecting what? A good conscience. Paul would say in Acts 24, 16, I always take pains to have a clear or a good conscience toward both God and man. Now, John MacArthur has written an excellent book. It's called The Vanishing Conscience. And he's got a lot of good insight into the conscience. It's an older book of his, but let me give you a few quotes from John MacArthur. He gives excellent insight. He says this, Our conscience is like the nerve endings in our fingertips. Its sensitivity to external stimuli can be damaged by the buildup of calluses or even wounded so badly to be virtually impervious to any feeling. So, those rare times when Doug is gone and I have to lead worship, I don't know if you guys noticed, but I wear those little blue things on my pinky. You're like, what are those blue things on Sean's hands? They're like little rubber thimble type things because I have not built up calluses to play guitar because I don't play guitar that often. So it kills me to play guitar because those strings prick into me. I haven't developed calluses like Doug and Cody and my, my son Aiden where they can just play guitar and, and their hands are rough because there's no longer sensitivity to those those strings. But, but I haven't built up those calluses. So what what Paul is saying is your conscience can build up calluses to where you're no longer sensitive to God's truth. You're no longer sensitive to righteousness. You've become callous. Ephesians 4.19 says this, They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So, the Bible speaks of a defiled conscience, a seared conscience. Now, this word seared can mean one of two things. Number one, it can mean cauterized. When you cauterize a wound, you've probably seen those movies where somebody's bleeding out and they don't have what they need, so they, they burn a knife or they burn something and they cauterize the wound. It, it, it deadens the nerves to cauterize. That could be what it means. It means that your conscience has been so deadened to truth, it's cauterized, it's, it's branded, it's seared. But the word also can mean branded by Satan. Satan has put his brand on your conscience to where you are now owned by Satan. I think both can be true. I tend more towards the first one, that it's a cauterization. But no matter how you slice it, you have become deadened or calloused sin you're no longer bothered by sin you're no longer shocked by its wickedness in the proverbial words of pink floyd you become comfortably numb to sin in your life no amount of stimulus no amount of pricking no amount of warning will awaken your conscience so how do you prevent this from happening how do you prevent that that's a scary thing to have your conscience defiled to have your conscience seared. How do you prevent this from happening? How do you protect your conscience? Well, well Glenn read this earlier. One of the primary ways you protect your conscience is Romans 12:2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind, by the by by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect constant renewal of the mind through intake of scripture will help you to keep your conscience good so it doesn't become deadened you've got to constantly focus your heart and your mind on the things of the lord to be transformed and paul would say it this way in second corinthians 10 four through five for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey God. Take those thoughts captive. You you saturate your mind with Scripture. You renew your mind. As opposed to the world forming your conscience, the Word of God forms your conscience. And so here's what John MacArthur says again. He continues, The conscience functions like a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light we expose it to and by how clean we keep it. Cover it or put it in total darkness and it ceases to function. Your conscience is like a skylight. You better let the light of God's word come in and fill because if not, it's going to get darkened. So open your heart, open your mind to the truth of God's word continually. Submit your imagination, submit your thoughts, submit your ambitions, submit your desires to the written word of God and invite others into your life to keep you accountable. So that's why we need sound doctrine. That's why we need to immerse our minds in scripture. Because the culture is going to come and try to shape and form your culture conscience, your heart, your mind. I've said this many times before. You are being discipled whether you know it or not. It's not a matter of if you're being discipled. It's who's discipling you. Is it the culture or is it God's Word? Parents, your kids are being discipled by culture by cartoons, by television, by video games, by movies. They're discipling your kids whether you know it or not. The question is not, are you being discipled? It's who's discipling you. Are you being formed by God's word or are other things coming in like the skylight and influencing your heart and your mind? Okay, so we've seen the dire reality. We've seen the demonic source. Let's look at the third thing this morning, the damaging effects. So these men we're dabbling in what I would call legalism or a more specific word asceticism I don't expect you to remember that word but what are the two things that they're doing well you can see the teaching you can see the false teaching what what are the the false teachings here well verse 3 who here's the first one forbid marriage these guys are forbidding marriage now, Paul does not elaborate much on this because from Genesis chapter 1 all the way throughout the Bible, marriage is honored by God. All throughout the Bible, we see that marriage is good. Marriage is God's good design for a husband and wife to come together in covenant marriage for companionship, for intimacy, for joy, for procreation. Marriage is God's ultimate standard for a man and a woman. And Jesus even said this in Matthew nineteen four 4-6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God has joined husbands and wives together." Hebrews 13:4: "Let marriage be honored, or let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And here's something interesting when you go through church history. When you go through about the first 300 years of church history, most of the church fathers and the theologians, they frowned upon marriage. They said you need to either be a perpetual virgin or you need to be chaste or, or celibate. But, but marriage is really not a good thing. And if you have to get married, don't enjoy it. Husbands and wives don't ever enjoy that intimacy. And, and, and if, you ha- if you have to have intimate relationships, just realize it's only for procreation. And even the Roman Catholic Church taught this. So for about the first 1,500 years of the church, marriage was looked down upon. But guess who came to the rescue? The Puritans. What? The Puritans? I found an interesting story. In the New England colonies in the 1600s, a wife complained to her pastor and to the entire church that her husband was neglecting his sexual duties. And guess what happened? They called for church discipline and almost excommunicated him for not meeting his wife's needs. Now, that's pretty extreme. This was the Puritans, okay? This was the Puritans. Surprisingly, this Puritans came along and said, no, marriage is good. Intimacy within marriage is wonderful. It's not just for procreation. There's joy. There's intimacy. There's companionship. There's romantic love. So, it's interesting that the Puritans came to the rescue, to rescue marriage out of this weird view that it had been held among Christians for about the first 1,500 years of, of Christianity. But what was going on in Paul's day? What was this whole idea of forbidding marriage? We don't know a lot, but it was probably some type of Jewish mysticism where they believed celibacy was a higher plane of reality. If you, if you were celibate, then you were truly spiritual. But what most scholars think was happening was Don't get married, but you can go enjoy as much sexual immorality as you want. It's like an excuse to go out and have as much fun as you want as long as you weren't married. So it was kind of like this whole, you can go engage in temple prostitution, just, you know, don't get married type thing. So it's, it's kind of a weird thing. The second type of false teaching here is forbidding certain foods, abstinence from foods. Now, this was probably meat. This was probably vegetarianism or meat sacrificed to idols. And Romans 14, 17 says this For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here's what these guys are doing they're going beyond what the written scripture says and coming up with man made rules to impose upon others. Whether it's abstinence from food or whether it's forbidding marriage. And interesting. They're leading people into two ditches. Did you see the ditches? One is extreme legalism. One is extreme immorality. And so these false teachings, whether it's extreme legalism, like depriving yourself of food, or, hey, don't worry about getting married. I'm going to forbid marriage, but you can go have as much sex as you want. It's basically taking God's word and basically just twisting it to meet this agenda. So let's look at the fourth thing this morning, the devotional corrective to false teaching. So there's a dire reality. It's there. The Holy Spirit says it's going to be there. It's demonic. The source is demonic. And then there are definitely some effects, but what's the corrective? Well, Paul gives two reasons to reject these prohibitions. And the first one is that everything God created is good. Look what he says there in verse 4. Everything God created created is good. Everything created by God is good. What did God say in Genesis 1.31? God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. God made everything very good. Jesus declared all foods to be clean in Mark 7 18 through 19 he said then are you also without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled thus he declared all foods clean so the issue is not clean or unclean foods the issue is not forbidding marriage the issue that Paul says is listen Everything God created is good. And second, we should receive these gifts with thanksgiving. Notice what else he says there. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Twice in this passage he says it needs to be received with thanksgiving. Now, I have heard some people abuse this passage of Scripture to give blank permission to commit any type of sin. I can engage in any type of sin as long as I give thanksgiving for it. So I can go out and engage in sexual immorality as long as I thank God before I do it. Or I can go out and take illegal drugs as long as I thank God that I'm doing it. No, the Bible clearly talks about works of the flesh that are sinful, and you can't just engage in any of these works of the flesh and just, quote-unquote, be thankful. Like, God created all things good. Okay, if I take the logic conclusion to that, prostitution's good. Therefore, I can engage in it as long as I give thanksgiving. All things created are good. God created um, heroin. Heroin must be good. So, therefore, as long as I give thanksgiving. See, there's, there's faulty logic in that. Galatians 5, 19-20, The works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the problem. Any type of external measure you do, whether it's abstaining from food or doing some type of legalistic thing that's outward, it cannot change your heart. You can do all the outward types of things, but it's never going to get to the heart. And why is that? Because even as a saved person, you still have a sinful nature. Paul even addresses this in Colossians two twenty one through 23. He says, he's quoting the, the, the slogans of these false teachers in, in the book of Colossians. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These, these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, these false teachers were leading God's people to think that if they didn't get married but still had sex outside of marriage or they avoided meat but ate vegetables, they could still be quote-unquote spiritual. It was their mystery of godliness, which is in direct contrast to what Paul just said verses earlier back in chapter 3 about the true mystery of godliness. So how do you avoid false teaching? How do you confront it? How do you stay grounded? You'd probably be surprised by Paul's answer. Thankfulness. Thankfulness for God's grace, but thankfulness in a very important way. Notice how he ends it. What does he say at the end of verse 5? For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. How do you avoid false teaching? You live a life of thankfulness that's immersed in the word and prayer. The more you spend time in the word, the more you spend time in prayer, you are going to avoid these false teachings. You see, one of the marks of Christian maturity is that you can enjoy God's good gifts without abusing them. Let me say that again. One of the signs of Christian maturity is you can enjoy God's good gifts without abusing them. Phil Reichen has given some good advice here. He says, one way to test if God's gifts are being used properly is to ask this question. So here's the question. Can I thank God for what I'm doing right now without being ashamed of myself? A sensitive Christian will find it impossible to thank God for gross excess. Furthermore, true gratitude always leads to generosity so the antidote antidote to false teaching is a proper understanding of god as creator that all things are for god's glory that we are to seek him through prayer and we are to be a people who are saturated in his word in other words your heart and soul are god-centered not me centered False teaching, if you notice it, almost always takes the focus away from Jesus. And it puts it back on yourself. Or a false substitute. So let's think about the gospel this morning. Let's think about the gospel of Jesus Christ where everything is focused on him. How does Paul root this teaching? He goes all the way back to creation. He says everything God created is good. He takes us back to Genesis chapter 1. He takes us back to creation. So what do we need to know about creation? Well, God is our creator. God is sovereign. God is good. God is holy. God is our creator. And thus we are accountable to God as our creator. But you know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, right? Just three verses, three chapters into the Bible, things go south. Adam and Eve disobey God's good design. God said everything's good, but you can't eat from this one tree. If you eat from this tree, you're going to die. Adam and Eve said, God, you're holding out on us. And so they eat from the tree, and what happens? They bring sin and death into the world. And so, every single one of us, because of Adam and Eve's sin, are born hopeless, helpless, and hellbound, separated from God because we have sinned against our Creator. And God could have stopped right there in Genesis chapter 3 and said, I'm done with this human race thing. Adam and Eve, you blew it. I'm destroying you. I'm going no further. There is no second chance. God could have stopped there and been totally just in doing that. But what did He do? He gave a promise. He gave a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he would send a man, born of a woman, to crush the head of Satan. That is the very first prophecy in the Bible about Jesus, the coming Messiah. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God created everything good, Adam and Eve destroyed it, and God says, I'm going to provide Jesus as the answer to cover your sins, to forgive you, and to bring you back into a right relationship with your creator. So a church, a faithful church, as Paul is warning us here, anticipates false teaching. It's a reality. Many are going to fall away. There's false teaching everywhere, but you avoid it. You avoid it. And how do you avoid it? You fix your eyes on Jesus and the cross. You rest in him alone as your only hope of forgiveness. You hold fast to his word. You joyfully confess him as Savior and Lord. What did we look at last week? What's right before this teaching? I'm glad you asked, Pastor Sean. Just go up one verse. Verse 16 of chapter 3. We looked at this last week, but it, it's, right on, it's right before what we looked at this morning. Great indeed, we confess. Remember, this is a confession. Is the mystery of godliness. This is true godliness. This is, the, this is ultimately true reality here. It's all about Jesus. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. This is the truth and beauty of Jesus. This is true godliness. This is true godliness, not legalism, not blatant immorality, not demonic false teaching, but this confession about the glory of Christ. And so if we're going to avoid false teaching, we hold fast this confession, this mystery of godliness, this beauty of Jesus. So let us hold fast this confession and let us avoid false teaching and let us trust and rest and believe in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. And let us do this, because Paul said it twice, let us be thankful. Thankful for His amazing grace. In our salvation, what did we sing earlier? Oh, no, what? You never let go. Jesus never lets go go. He is your Savior. He holds you to the end. And if you're truly His, He will keep you from false teaching and you will never fall away. But the means He does to get us there is for us to keep our eyes fixed on Him through the word and prayer with a heart of thanksgiving. So let us leave this place thankful that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. So let us be thankful for our great Savior. So let me ask you to bow your heads as we spend time this morning in thanksgiving to Jesus for being our wonderful Savior. Spend a few moments asking the Lord to give you strength to avoid false teaching And to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in the word and in prayer. Father in heaven, it's my uh, prayer this morning. As pastor of this flock and as one concerned about all of our souls. That nobody in this room would be caught up in false teaching. The Lord, our hearts and our minds and our eyes would be fixed upon the solid truth of your word and on the truth of your gospel. And so, Lord, help us to be thankful people. Help us to avoid these false teachings. Help us to know your word so well that we can see it coming. Help us to pray for those that we may know that are going down a wrong path. And help us just just to avoid this by saying true to your gospel. Help us to be a people that confess the mystery of godliness, that Jesus, you are the absolute Savior you are the absolute Lord and your word is absolute truth. We confess that, we hold to that, we live in the glory of that. So help us to be strong this week as we leave this place because we know, Lord, that the, the devil does not like what just happened this morning. He doesn't like your word preached. He doesn't like believers being equipped. And the moment that we're deployed outside these doors to go out in the world, those flaming arrows are going to come at us. So, Lord, help us to walk out of this place in the full armor of God, being ready to stand in the day of evil. And, Holy Spirit, would you give us the strength in a world of error, in a world of heresy, in a world of lies to stand strong in the truth. Give us that strength, Holy Spirit, as we walk out of this place. And Lord, help us to always be overflowing with thanksgiving for your amazing grace in our lives. Help us to receive your good gifts with thanksgiving, not to abuse them, but to know that you're our creator and we're accountable to you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace as we leave this place this morning will we keep our eyes fixed on you. And it's in your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.